Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. Right now we are in a series through the book of Colossians. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the word. If you're finding Colossians chapter 3 this morning, some of you may have read ahead already today um, as you knew about, uh, as you knew we were going to be going into chapter 3 verses 18 through the end of our chapter this morning. And you see that in 18 and 19, you see that the subject is marriage, right? Uh, so we're going to be looking at marriage today. We're also going to be looking at how our relationships with our kids go and also how our relationships at work uh, go as well. But we've been in this book of Colossians now. This is now our ninth message, I believe, is a, if I've counted it out right. I may be off by one. I'm not sure. Um, but we've been looking at Paul's theme, the preeminence of Christ, that Jesus is first place in everything. So look at your neighbor and say, Jesus is first place in everything. Okay? All right, good. Because, uh, and Jesus will always be first place in everything. There are some people that are first place only for like a week, and then they lose to Evansville. And then um, they're no longer first place anymore, okay? So anyway, there's a support group for that later on after the service as well. But in chapters 1 and 2, we see the theologi- uh, theological declaration. Uh, as we break in this book down, we see this theological declaration of that Christ is first and he is above all. We saw that he is preeminent in creation. He was first in everything. He went first in the gospel. He went first in resurrection. And because of him, we have salvation and we have resurrection spiritually as well. As we turn the corner into chapter 3, we begin to look at the practical application of it's wonderful to know that Jesus is preeminent, but what does that mean for my life? And how does that reflect in my life? Because it's one thing to know Scripture and to, mean that, and to acknowledge in my head or in my, in, in, from, a, from an academic standpoint that Jesus is first in everything, but it is a completely different thing entirely to actually make him first in my life to live as though he's preeminent and where he touches every aspect uh, every aspect of our lives. And the truth is that the Colossian believers were struggling with this just as much as we still do today in 2019. We haven't gotten it right any more than they had it right back then. We have trouble with surrendering to Jesus. We have trouble with surrendering to our identity to Christ, to realize that now that I'm a Christian means I'm not my own. <clears throat> Derek, like, like John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Derek must decrease while Christ increases in me. Graceway must decrease while Christ increases in us and among us. And through the ministries that we do and through the efforts that we make uh, to share the gospel. When Jesus saves us, he brings us to life. What that means is we didn't even exist spiritually. In the greatest sense, we had not even come alive until Christ saved us. So Christ is deserving of our all, and he is deserving of everything. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And so we see this pivotal verse in verse number 17. It's where we closed out two weeks ago. He says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do, help me out, everything or do all to the glory or do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this is the key verse, I believe, of the last half of the book of Colossians, that everything that we do is in the name of Jesus and is for the glory of Christ. So every interaction that we have, not just the spiritual ones that we have on Sundays, not just the churchy ones that we have with church people, but everything that we do, every moment of our lives should say, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so when you sit down at your desk in the morning and you open up your inbox to start your day, you're doing this in Jesus' name for your will and for your glory. You meet up with a friend for lunch. You should think, I'm doing this in Jesus' name for his will, for his glory. A person tries to merge in traffic in front of you. You think, oh, I'm going to respond in Jesus' name for his will and for his glory. You get off work early. That doesn't happen very much, right? But you get off work early and you think, I'm going to go play golf. I'm going to meet up with a friend and go to a movie. You're doing this in Jesus' name. There is an aspect where we should bring honor and glory to God in everything that we do. You kiss your spouse at the end of a long day in Jesus' name. That's going to change the kiss, right? Um, You take somebody down in Fortnite or Call of Duty. Or you crush that candy before you go to bed in Jesus' name. Now, maybe we don't go that far. But uh, you get what I'm saying. Every aspect of our lives has a Jesus factor to it. Or at least we should consider that. Every aspect of our lives should have a Jesus factor to it. Now, I'm not advocating that you start everything that you do, start saying, well, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Your boss comes in and says, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing good in Jesus' name. They already think we're weird enough as Christians as it is, so let's not give them more fuel for the fire. It's a heart position, realizing that God is always watching. And at the end of the day, He's the ultimate judge of everything that we're doing, everything that we're saying, how we're doing it, and the heart that we're doing it with, and the heart that we're doing it from. So let's look at Colossians. This is the idea of Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. In our text, Paul talks about what this looks like, what the preeminence of Christ looks like outside church, outside just the church relationships. Up until now, he's been talking about, okay, how the Christian life should look. How does the Christian life look in the everyday what we would call humdrum, going through the motions, just getting through life kinds of things. And so he looks at three areas of life. He looks at three relationships that just about all of us can, at one point or another in our lives, relate to. He looks at the relationship of wives and husbands. He looks at the relationship of kids and parents. And he looks at the relationship of employees and bosses. All right. So every one of us probably understand one of those relationships. The point is that every interaction in our life in these relationships should be viewed as done first and foremost in Christ. Now, that's hard to do, isn't it? Because how many of you have a perfect marriage? I'm the only one with my hand up. My wife's not even got a hand. No, I'm just kidding. If you, ha- if you have a perfect marriage, none of us have perfect marriages, right? How many of you have uh, kids? How many of you have perfect parents? Parents, how many of you got perfect kids? How many of you got a perfect boss? How many of you have perfect employees if you happen to be a boss, right? None of us are perfect. And so here's the thing. What the Bible is saying, and what we're going to see here is, the way that we manage those relationships is by viewing and responding not to the people that we have those relationships with, but first and foremost to consider our response in light of God and Jesus in us, working through us. So let's look at verse number 18 uh, of chapter 3, and we're going to look all the way down through uh, chapter 4, verse 1, because this is one area where when they laid out the chapter numbers and verses, um, they kind of they carried one over a little bit. Really, verse 1 kind of belongs with the thoughts above it. So let's look at verse number 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger unless they'll, unless they'll be discouraged. Servants or slaves or employees, obey in all things your masters or your bosses according to the flesh. Not with eye service or just while people are looking or as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord 
and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the word of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he that does wrong shall receive for the wrong which he's done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters or bosses, those who are in authority, give unto your servants that which is just and which is equal, knowing that you, shall, you also have a master in heaven. The title of the message this morning is Jesus Over the 90%, and that is not from a financial standpoint. This is from the relationship standpoint, because much of our life we view in compartments. We look at, oh, I got my church life, but then I got my home life, and then I got my work life. Jesus is and should be over all of it. Instead of separating everything out into these compartments and segments, all of it comes together and it becomes much more simple when I live my life unto Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll have your way in this, invita- or in this, uh, uh, in this sermon this morning, and I pray that you'll guide in the time that we have uh, to look at these relationships this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So today we're looking at the preeminence of Christ, how it affects our daily relationships. And the question is, why would God care about these relationships? Because they're all human relationships. They're all earthly relationships. As a matter of fact, none of these relationships are going to exist when we get to heaven. You know, the Bible says that we're not married or given to marriage when we're in heaven. So why does he care so much about my marriage? The Bible says that our family, our blood relationship will be replaced by the fact that we've all been adopted into the family of God. So we'll know as we've been known, but there won't be mom and dad and husband and wife in heaven. We're not going to be slaves. We're no longer slaves and bound by our sin or anything. And so there's no slavery. There's no indentured servitude in heaven. We're all going to serve the perfect master, Jesus, in heaven. So why does he care so much about these relationships? And it's because each one of these relationships are metaphors in this world, in this life, for how we as humans relate to God the Father how we relate to God the Son, and how we relate to God the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at that this morning, and we have to keep that in mind as believers, that when we're in our marriages, it's not just about husband and wife. When you're parenting your kids, it's not just about parents and kids. It's about husband, wife, and the Father. It's about husband, wife, and Jesus. It's about kids and parents and God. It's about the Holy Spirit and you and God. And so we have to keep that in mind, and so we're going to look at some words today. Because the text gives us some words that are just like really hard to deal with, right? Especially in the, especially, uh, in the, first, in the first couple of words, right? Um, so these relationships end up being almost like living parables uh, in a way that for us to relate to God's kingdom. Each of these relationships are living physical metaphors for our spiritual relationship with God and our understanding of his nature. And because we have to understand that Christ impacts All of our lives, not just the pieces we want to give him. I like the way Pastor J.D. Greer says it. He says, there is not one square inch of your life where Jesus does not look at it and emphatically declare, that is mine. Not one square inch of our life, Jesus does not look at and emphatically declare, that is mine. And our struggles are in different areas, and that's our struggle today in following him, is will I give him what's rightfully his? For some of you, your struggle is, will I give him my spare time? For others, will I give him the talents that he's given me? Will I return those to him, or will I just use them for me? For others, it may be, will I return to him the monetary blessings that he's given to me? For others, it may be, will I give him my marriage? Will I give him my kids? Will I give him my career? Will I give him these things? Whatever you do, Colossians says, 
Do it from the heart as something that is done for the Lord and not for people, knowing this, that you will receive a reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So how you respond to that person who cut you off in traffic on the way to church this morning, you're responding first and foremost to Jesus. You may feel like that person doesn't deserve your patience, you, but the question is, what does Jesus deserve in your response? When you're doing your job, you're doing it as an offering to him. You may work for the world's worst boss, jerkiest boss in the world, but the question is not, what does my boss deserve? The question is, what does Jesus, my Lord and Savior, deserve? Does he deserve my best? And the answer is, yes, that he does. When I'm figuring out how to respond to my wife because she's been unfairly impatient with me all day and I'm responding first and foremost to Jesus, I may not feel like she deserves a kind and tender response, but he does. And actually, that doesn't ever happen in our house. I had to just kind of play along like that happened because I'm married to the perfect wife, so uh, never, nothing ever goes wrong. But in the real case is usually this, is that my wife feels like her husband uh, doesn't deserve another day of faithful and, 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 loving, and loving service and love. That he's taken her for granted for the thousandth time and he doesn't deserve any more patience, but she realizes, hey, I'm in this because I'm glorifying God through my marriage too, and so how I respond um, is an offering to God as well. Kids, your parents may not be perfect. Trust me, I'm their pastor. I know they're not perfect, but they are the God-given authority that God has placed over your life for a moment. For 18 years or however long it is, they're the God-given authority, and how you respond to them is ultimately the response that you have to God and his authority over your life. I may not want to be a good worker at work. I may not think that my company deserves all of what I give them, but I have to understand that God deserves everything because he's given me. So we look at some of these tough words this morning, and I do want to move quickly through these, so you got to listen closely this morning, okay? So let's get into the first relationship, the marriage relationship, wives and husbands. There's two words that we see here that are dictated. And these words, these characteristics, these are how we pursue honoring God by relating to the people that we are in relationships with. And the first thing, he talks to wives. And he says, wives, and what is that word that we see there? Submit. Okay. So first we have to understand that the marriage relationship, the reason that Paul talks about this is because this human relationship is a biblical metaphor for the relationship of the church of Jesus Christ with the groom, Jesus himself. The Bible uh, talks about the church in the terms of being a bride while Christ is the groom. That one day Christ is going to come again and receive us. That right now, in in, in this New Testament age, we're kind of in the engagement phase. And one day Christ is coming and that grand wedding is going to take place. But until now, we are still learning how to relate to one another as the church to Jesus Christ. Do we always get it right? No, but as the bride of Christ, our main role in this life is to submit to his leadership, to his authority. And that is why the role of the wife in the husband and wife relationship is defined by this word called submission. Now, how many of you struggle with the word submission? Just be honest, you're in church, be honest. I'll be honest with you, I struggle with it too. And I'm not even a wife. I struggle with it because I struggle from a husband's perspective. How, what am I supposed to expect from that word? How many wrestling fans do we have in here? Okay, a few of you. Let me let you in on a little secret. My wife is a bigger wrestling fan than I am. Okay, you want to talk about wrestling? Don't come to me. Talk to my wife. Okay, there was, there was this crazy time in college when she loved wrestling. Okay. But when we think about wrestling, we th- I, I, that's what I think about when I see the word submission. I picture two people gr- 
just, just grappling at each other, trying to win supreme you know, authority, to put them in a submission hold or for the person to finally tap out because they've been completely and utterly dominated and they're out of energy anymore. And that's the way many of us look at submission. We look at it as domination and, and domination by force and by strength. But the biblical meaning of submission in the passage right here comes from a Greek word that was more related to the military. It's talking about a voluntary submission because of respect of rank and authority that is given. So when Paul says, wives, submit yourselves to your husband, it's really in relation to the nature of God, that he is a God of decency and of order. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, it says, let everything be done decently and in order. That extends beyond the church, and it, it extends into the home as well. So he has this hierarchy, and it's not necessarily a hierarchy of how he feels about us. It's a hierarchy of responsibility and chain of command. And so what God is saying is, I, as the husband, or I, as the father, I, as the creator of this, of this unit called marriage, and Jesus, as the head, is over the husband, and then the husband is over the wife, and the wife's re relation to Jesus as a member of his church is to submit to his authority by submitting to the husband's authority in the home because the home mimics the church relationship with Jesus Christ. It's completely voluntary, and it is based upon respect. It's not based upon fear. It's not best based upon exasperation or being worn out or being dominated. God's instruction for wives is to submit, to submit does not indicate that God looks at you as a lesser human being. When we hear that word submission, we think sometimes that it means that, that I'm not strong enough or I don't measure up to the person that is over me. That is not what he's talking about. And this submission is not merit-based. It is strictly role-based, based upon God's design. And God's design for the wife in the relationship is completely different and just as sacred and set apart for God's glory as the husband's role is. Does that make sense? Because I'm not trying, I do not want to come across as though submission is in any way demeaning to our women because I think for a long time we've kind of gotten into this guys, especially we've gotten this he-man woman haters club thinking, well, man, if my wife would just submit, everything would be okay. We're going to find out in just a minute when we get to verse number 19 that we may not be worthy of that submission. Because what he says is submit as is fitting to the Lord. If we're not leading in a godlike manner, we make it really hard for our wives to submit. Because she's supposed to be submitting to Christ first and foremost, and if we're leading opposite Christ, how is she supposed to submit to us and to Christ at the same time? It's not going to be able to happen. God's instruction for wives does not indicate that he views the wife to be of lesser importance or value in the marriage. I don't think anyone would argue with the fact that Jesus as the groom and us as the bride, that the church should submit to Jesus Christ. Anybody would disagree with that? Nobody would argue that fact. And so this, if this is the picture portrayed through marriage, that wives, you're playing the role of the church, led by and voluntarily submitted to a new identity and leadership in Christ, this is why you are vital. And this is why marriage, biblical marriage, is vital in every society today, because it paints the picture of his church with Jesus Christ. But it has to be a good picture. And let me say this while I'm on my rant and while you're mad at me. A husband that selfishly demands submission from his wife is not worthy of it. I'll just say that. Because Christ never selfishly demands submission of his church. 
The submission that he wants of his church is based upon what he knows is for his glory and for our good. He works all things together for our good. Yes, it's his good, but his good is our good. So a husband that will selfishly demand submission from his wife is not worthy of it, and a wife that will not submit to her husband's leadership in God's order of the marriage is out of step with God as well, and that marriage cannot be blessed. So the question this morning is, is Christ preeminent in my home? Is our home in order? Now let's get to the husbands. We've, 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 we've handled this with the wives. Let's get to the husbands. Why does Paul mention the wives first? Because I think that if submission is to happen, it's going to be because the husband has borne the major responsibility of fulfilling his duty first. And his duty is love. Look what it says. Husbands, love your wives. And don't be bitter toward them. Now, guys, if I ask you, do you love your wives? You're probably going to say, yes, I do. Now, you may be thinking, I may not like her very much. Don't give me that stuff. Do you love your wives? You see, I get to do marriage counseling when somebody comes to me for a wedding and I always sit down with a couple, and they're full on eros love. They're full on that romantic love, that love that, you know, the, you know that, that, that kind of love. They love each other, and they just can't wait to get married, and their hearts are all the Twitter-pated and all that type of stuff. But then after the marriage, you begin to grow into the other aspects of love, too. We know that there's phileo love, that family kind of love, that brotherly kind of love, and then you grow into that mature love, which is agape. Agape love is that selfless sacrificial, enduring, unconditional, I ain't going to give up on us kind of love. That's the way Jesus loves the church. And if the marriage relationship doesn't have all three aspects of, the, of love, it is somehow malnourished. But husbands, guess where the love is to come from? It's not supposed to come from her. The love is supposed to come from us. And if we will not love... We do not deserve submission. If we do not love in the way that Christ loved, we do not deserve that submission. And this isn't just an instruction, guys, for us to have warm and fuzzies for our wife, to be like, man, you're looking smoking hot today. I just love you. No, it is a command to be, not a command to be continually romantically sweeping her off her feet. Although, what's the harm in that? Right? Can I get a witness, ladies? I mean, you know, what's the harm in that, right? But this is the command, when he says love your wives, it's the command to be the number one sacrificial servant of the home. The number one sacrificial servant of the home. He said, hold on for a second, I thought that just said that wives are supposed to be submissive. Yes, submissive is not an act of slavery and servitude. Submission is in an act of respect and dignity. We are supposed to be the number one servant at home. Ephesians 5, husbands are told to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself for it. What does that mean? He died for the church. He laid down his life. He put himself last for us. But it doesn't stop there. You say, what? You want me to die for you, but that's not enough? What else did Jesus do? He says that he made us holy. We are to be loving in a way that sets our wives apart to glorify Jesus Christ. That means that my relationship with my wife should not and cannot and must not get in the way of her relationship with Jesus Christ. That if I lead in a way that leads her away from Christ, I have now led her into a dangerous place. Stacy and I made a deal a long time ago that, the, that we were allowed to love each other only so much as it didn't get in the way of our love for Jesus. That I want her to love Jesus more than she loves me. And she wants the same thing. And we don't have everything figured out. I'm not saying that we have it figured out. Because that's a daily struggle. 
It's a daily struggle. Because sometimes I don't want to love her and I don't want to love Jesus very much either, right? If we're, if we're being really honest. But you see, guys, if we do not love in a sacrificial way, we're not deserving of that compassion, of that submission, of that respect of position from our wives. So it's a sacrifice with a hopeful, with a holy purpose. I'm not just sacrificing and giving to keep her happy. I'm sacrificing and I'm giving and I'm loving to enrich her holiness before God. Because guys, one day, the person standing before God to give an account for your home will not be your wife. It will not be your kids. It will be you. And she will have given an account for her submission and you will give an account for your love. And so loving like Jesus loves, meaning means I will put myself in the front lines. I will take the bullet. I will take the heat. I will lead as Christ leads me. And here's the thing, too. Y'all realize that submission isn't just something for the wives, right? We're supposed to be submitting to, but we're supposed to be submitting to God and to one another in the fear of the Lord. Submitting to one another. And realize, guys, we need to realize that our wives are a wellspring of wisdom. If they're walking with Jesus, they're friends, they're sisters in Christ. Don't try to bear it all yourself. Our submission is the head of the home to Jesus that sets the stage for our wife's submission to the leadership. So if you're having a problem with that, guys, we need to check ourselves. Husbands, we can't go rogue on God. We can't go rogue on God because when we do that, we set everything else out of kilter. And I believe this, that women... And they get a bad rap a lot of times. And unfortunately, for a long time, they've gotten a bad rap in the church, and they shouldn't. And ladies, I don't want to apologize for that. I believe this. I believe, ladies, I believe you genuinely want to follow Christ. You know how I know that? At every given church in the United States of America today, you will find that there are far more women in the churches than there are men today. They want to follow the Lord. They want to do what God is calling them to do. But guys, if we won't stand in the position to take the leadership like God has intended, what are they supposed to do? Y'all still love me? I didn't love myself much when I was working on this sermon. So let's move to the kids. Y'all ready for this, kids? You ready? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hold on, man. We've been going 30 minutes. Are we going to be done? I want to spend a lot of time on the marriage. We're going to get you guys real fast. Are you ready? Because this is easy for you guys. Verse number 20, let's look at it together. Children, help me out. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. This relationship is a metaphor of the nature that God has with his creation, because we are his children. God the Father, the relationship with God the Father to the kids. See, submit, and here's the thing. You all get a, bad, a worse rap than, the, than, than, than moms do, because guess what? Their word is submission, and submission is voluntary. Guess what your word is? Obey. Is obey voluntary? No, obey is like you've got to do it. It's no other choice. It's not a voluntary thing because what happens when we don't obey? We get disciplined, we get punished, right? Why would it be this way? Well, when you think about the relationship between a husband and a wife, it's a different relationship than between kids and parents. Husbands and wives are voluntary. They've chosen to be together in most cultures unless you're in an arranged marriage type of culture. But in our culture today, we understand marriage that is a voluntary relationship that we've entered into. So we voluntarily love and submit to one another. But when you're a kid, you didn't get to choose your parents, right? You know, parents, you didn't get to choose your kids. You, you got what you got, unless you got into adoption and things like that. And then that throws everything off. 
right? But in the normal relationship, you get into that situation, right? So what he's saying is you didn't get to choose that. Guess who did choose that? There was a choice involved in the parents and the, and the kids coming together. It was God. God ordained that in the way that he planned everything out. And he put you together in your family, biologically or adoptive as it may be, he put you together for a reason that brings him honor and glory and speaks to the nations and to the lost around. God is at work in this home. That's the message that he's trying to give. And what he's saying to kids is, trust me through this. No, your parents aren't perfect. It may look like they have two heads sometimes. They may not understand how to send a text message the right way. They don't understand the emoji language. They don't get what it's like to live in 2019. They don't understand. But I understand what I was doing when I put you in this family. I understood what I was doing when I blessed them with you. And I'm asking you to trust me, and when you trust me, and when you obey them, it will become easier to obey. But this hinges, guys, on whether or not you'll submit to God, whether you're willing to give him first in your life. Because if we are giving him first in our life as kids, then that means we'll give our parents the obedience that they deserve as parents. Now, parents, let's flip the script. Their role is obedience. Guess what our parents, our parental role is here, particularly fathers, But in other texts, it it speaks of the parents together. Look at verse number 21, and I'm reading from the CSB. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. So the word that we need to look at here is a word of encouragement. Parents, our greatest role is to be encouraging parents to our kids because there's enough discouragement out there. The enemy, from a spiritual standpoint alone, the enemy is going to do all he can to discourage our kids. And he's winning a battle today, man. The suicide rate of our kids has skyrocketed in this generation. And that's why I think it's so important. Look what it says. So that they will not become discouraged. The original Greek word refers to deep depression and soul death. We're not just talking about your kids being mad at you for a day because you grounded them for not cleaning their, work, their room. We're talking about leading them in such a way where they never have affirmation that you love them, that you care for them, you have their best interests at heart, and also the depression that comes from not knowing that you are led in the way of a creator. See, a great danger happened when we began to secularize in our country. I agree with this wholeheartedly. We've taught our kids from the ground up that they're a result of a cosmic accident and then wonder why they live with no purpose in their lives. Parents, God's parents, we have to teach our kids that they are holy, separated unto God. They are handcrafted by God from the moment they're conceived, not from the moment they draw their first breath. You are special, you are loved, and you are validated by the Father in heaven if you are not validated by your parents on earth. And parents, we have a righteous responsibility not to lead our kids into discouragement and and feeling abandoned and feeling that there is no one that loves them. Because you know what? One day our kids may sit and listen to a preacher or open up a Bible and see this passage. God the Father loves you so much that he gave his son for you. And they're going to say, I don't know a father like that. I don't know a mother like that. No one loves me. And why doesn't this God care for me enough to give me a father that does. We must model that because what's at stake for us as parents is the very spirit of our kids. The very spirit of our kids, the very heart of our kids. You can tell I feel passionately about this. 
because there's too many families that are broken and falling apart today because we've lost sight of the preeminent one. And our roles, they are hard to fill on our own. That's why we need a heavy dose of the Spirit of God. So parents, how does God deal with us as a parent to us? He deals with us in righteousness. He cannot abide disobedience. I'm not telling you to just slack up and go easy on your kids. I'm saying be loving and be encouraging in how you discipline. We have to deal with sin. We have to deal with disobedience and rebellion because God does that as well. He's fair, though, in his discipline. He's loving in his discipline. He always, always chastises in love. The Bible says even his anger is righteous. He always chastises in love. He's always controlled. He's never consumed with anger. He always works in a righteous way, always gentle in the context of his power. You say, well, God's gentleness doesn't feel very gentle in my mind. Remember, we're dealing with a sovereign, ultra-strong God. So his gentleness may not feel like gentleness, but it is gentle in the context of his power. And God also isn't holding grudges. And God is rich in grace. He lavishes forgiveness when forgiveness is asked for. Parents, the worst thing that we can do for our kids is to hold grudges against them, to bring up their past mistakes all the time, stuff that we were supposed, when we said we forgave, that we keep bringing back up. Because it doesn't show the nature of God. This is why many times our kids are walking around feeling defeated by God because or feeling defeated and though that the sin that they committed five, ten years ago is still not forgiven because God's still holding a grudge because they got that modeled from their parents. This is how we lead them to discouragement. In a society where the messages and ideas are flying at our kids faster than they ever have in any other generation, we need to make sure that the message our children are hearing from us is genuine, that it is consistent, and that it is in lockstep with the heartbeat of God that he has for his creation. I love what Pastor Richard Gaines, who's a pastor here in town, he said this on his Twitter feed the other day. He said, acceptance, adoration, and approval. These are the three things that every child needs and desires from their parent. Honor must begin at home. And so lastly, let me close out this morning. We've looked at the marriage relationship, and we've taken a helicopter view this morning. I mean, there's a lot. You get down on the ground and see these things. But let's look at this other relationship that we often don't consider. When you leave the house, where are you usually going? You're going to work, or you're going to school, which is work, right? So Colossians even gets into this work relationship. We look at the servants and the masters when he says in verse number 22, slaves or servants, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only by, while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something that is done for the Lord and not for people. Now, understand this. Because the word slaves or servants, uh, which is the word for slaves as well, is used here, it does not mean that the Bible condones or suggests slavery as a humane practice. We're speaking in the context of a Greco-Roman world where the Roman economy was built upon slavery, was built upon inhumane practices. The Bible does not condone slavery. Matter of fact, the, the gospel itself is predicated on the fact that when we get saved, we are set free from the ultimate slavery, the slavery of sin. So this is not condoning slavery. When we put it into our context today, we're looking at it as a context 
is a context of an employee to a boss. And so what we have to look at is, and what it gets into is, what's my work life looking like, and how is that, how is that um, showing Jesus? The word expected here from our employees in our context is honesty. Give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Regardless of whether your boss is a jerk who leaves after lunch to go play golf every day, never inviting you to come, always puts off the stuff that he's supposed to be doing onto you, regardless of any of that, regardless of whether your boss is a taskmaster who never shows appreciation for the work that you're doing, regardless of whether you're in a dead-end job and paid too little with no upward mobility, regardless of any of those negative things that may be going on, if no one at that place of your work sees what you do and sees your value, there is still someone in heaven who not only sees what you you do, but values you more than that company ever will be able to do. Because while that company may be able to give you more pay, they'll never be able to give you eternal life. You aren't given your faculties to work by your boss. You're not given your talents and abilities by the school that you went to that may have helped to enhance them, but ultimately you were handcrafted by God and given those talents and abilities to glorify him, not to line the pockets of a company and not even to line your portfolio. Your career, your job is your mission field. And when we're slacking off at work and we're putting more work on everybody else because we're just sloughing around, that is not, what's the word I'm looking for? That is not accomplishing the mission. That is not bringing glory to Christ the way we should. That definitely does not depict the work ethic of Jesus. Because what if Jesus sloughed off on the day of crucifixion and said, you know what, I'm just going to call it in early and I'm going to go play golf today. Or you know what, I think I've, I've given enough today. I'm going to take a mental health day today. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to like delegate uh, the crucifixion out to like Peter or James or one of you guys. You guys go to the cross today and do it. It wouldn't have worked. We have to be honest in our dealings as employees. And let me say this, in a culture that is continually moving away from Christ-like ethic, when we, incur, when we embrace that, especially in the workplace, it will be seen and it will be valued. I still believe that. You aren't given your faculties and you're not working and existing for the glory of that company. And it may feel like that's all you do is work, eat, sleep, repeat. Understand that everything you've been given is an opportunity to glorify God through what you do. Now let's turn to the bosses for a minute. You may have the opportunity of being a boss in here. In Colossians 4, verse 1, it says, Masters, deal with your, your slaves, or masters or bosses, deal with your employees justly and fairly. Since you know that you too have a master in heaven, if you happen to be in a role of a boss, take this to heart. Those under you are not there simply to make your life better. You are there to be a kingdom servant leader in their lives. And when you model the spirit of heaven, that's going to make an impact upon your employees that they may not get anywhere else in their life. Treat your employees like Christ has treated you with grace and with extravagance, with dignity and with respect. God doesn't continue to call us sinners after we're saved. He calls us saints and he doesn't keep us in our place. He elevates us to a joint heir position with Jesus Christ. He doesn't keep us at a distance. He calls and he beckons us to him. Wouldn't you want to work for a boss like that? That doesn't lord their authority over us. And this is what God is saying here through to the bosses of Colossae and to the bosses that are in the church, out there in the workplace. Be a leader like Jesus was. 
Lead like Jesus. Lead with grace and compassion, with the dignity of those that you lead as your focal point. Our professional relationships depict the spiritual relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And he does the work of conviction, and he does the work of illumination, and he does the work of empowerment. But guess what? He could spend all day in conviction, but he's convicting us to bring us closer to God. His aspect, what he's doing in us is the, the, the Holy Spirit is bringing us and forming us to his image, to the image of God's glory every day. Not to keep us in our place. He gives us the gifts of the Spirit so that we can exercise to see the kingdom magnified. So understand that your work relationship that you have is depicting that work relationship that you have with the Holy Spirit. As we close out again, I just want to bring you to that same quote that we opened with. What Pastor J.D. Greer says. There's not a square inch of your life that Jesus Christ does not look at and emphatically say, this is mine. So as we move to the close this morning, I want to ask you this. Is that true for your life? What part of your life has Jesus declared it's mine and you have given him? Have you been saved? Do you know Christ as your Savior? If you know Christ as your Savior, praise God for that. But are you serving him as your Lord? How we serve him in our lives, how we relate to one another says a lot about our view of God. You may be sitting here thinking right now that you have no idea what my marriage is like. You have absolutely no clue the hell on earth that I live in. And you may feel like your marriage is one breath away from falling apart. I want to ask you to breathe the breath of life back into it and ask yourself not so much, how bad is my relationship with my spouse? Ask yourself this, how much more can I improve my relationship with Christ? And as I do that, he begins to infuse his nature into that relationship. What response do I need to give with my kids? You may have a relationship where your kids have wandered far and you're thinking, I don't know how we'll ever get them back. Give them to Jesus. It's not easy, but let's start walking that road together because if the Bible is true, we believe it's true, correct? We must learn to submit. We must learn to love. We must learn to obey, to encourage we must learn to be honest, and we must learn to pursue the dignity of the people around us for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the nature of God to us. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the question this morning is this. Is your marriage a picture of the glorious relationship of the, of the church with Jesus? Is your home a picture of how God relates to the Father? Is your working environment a picture of how you serve Jesus with passion and with grace? After all of these relationships point to Jesus, and the question is, have you come to him? None of these relationships are perfect, but because of Jesus, they can be made better. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll have your will and way in this time of invocation this morning, that you'll move in this place. Speak to us as we surrender to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.